Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. It's Liz Kelly. This week, we launched a new show on the network called the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Coming from the guys who brought you the Fantasy Football Podcast, Danny Heifetz, Danny Kelly, and Craig Horlbeck will guide you through the fantasy football season, providing analysis on big picture conversations like weekly matchups, trades, and daily fantasy. The show will run every Monday and Wednesday throughout the rest of the summer, and we'll be helping you through the regular season as well. So follow and listen to the first episode of the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast, out now, for free, on Spotify. What's good? Thank you, young man. Oh, shit! Oh, shit! Nah, nah, nah. Hey, yo, Omar, yo, all due respect, but this right here, it's a Barksdale joint, man. Do tell. So now we start the slow road toward season three or within season three. It seems like, not it seems like it is the case with The Wire. They all start off very similar it's like i i noticed the pattern now more than i ever have now we're in foundation mode they're just laying the little tracks Mm -hmm. laying the foundation giving us all the little nibbles and the nuggets so we can slowly and methodically start piecing things together uh because as much as people love the wire i mean i think they're all accustomed to the fact that this is how it is is that you this is a this is a journey this is a marathon not a sprint and as is the case here in episode two, all due respect of season three, we're just getting nugget by nugget by nugget, getting the building blocks as we uh, progress toward arguably and in Van's mind, as he established mm. in, when we went over episode one, you think this is it. Yeah. And I got, I, I'll tease this now. I got quite the little factoid about season three that may it doesn't. I wouldn't say it necessarily goes against your argument that season three was the gr- was the greatest season, but it is one of those stats where I'm just like, really, people? Mm. Like, what were we on? What were we on? Mm. What were we thinking? So it's it's one of those type of deals. Uh, anyway, we're in all due respect now, Van. What were some of your takeaways from this particular episode? You said that it's building the foundation, and it is, but it's building the foundation by cracking foundations, mm. right? And so when you look at this, you start to see the little cracks that are going to turn into the fissures, that are going to turn into the major faults that this season is sort of going to rest itself unsteadily on. First fault, first crack that's happening is the political wedge that Karketi is now attempting to drive between Mayor Royce and Burel Perel, Okay. We know that Carcetti has his eyes on mayoral glory. And in order to do that, he's got to set some fires. Because right. as a white guy in Baltimore, he can't just come in there and do it the conventional way. He must set some fires. And he's choosing which sparks he is going to ignite. And the first one he sees, Burrell. Burrell wants to be commissioner Uh, permanently, and he wants to get himself with the right politician that's going to make sure that he has what he needs. And he also doesn't need Carcetti kicking his balls in. We saw that. Uh, Number two, um, 
Kima, we start to see cracks and fissures inside of, we've had already seen them, but now. It's on now. It's on. Kima's about to go full McNulty. You never want to go full McNulty. Right. But Kima's, never go full McNulty. she's about to go full McNulty here. Um, you see her sort of dissatisfaction with the home little lot, little house on the prairie sort of lifestyle. She's not she was feeling not that. Built for the picket She's fence. not built for the picket fence. Not in any in any way, shape, or form. So you start to see that happen with her. But the most important one is it's this episode where the foundation of the Stansfield Barfsdale War. Is set. It's the first time we see the rim shop, uh, which is, of course, where uh, Marlowe goes to get his counsel. This is the first time we're starting to see everybody else down in, in on the streets, on the corners, is opening up and warming up to Stringer's idea. But there is one holdout. It's a very important scene where the stakes are clearly laid out to Marlowe about the fact that this is going to mean war and Marlowe accepts the responsibility of the war. So all of these cracks, the cracks between it, within the major case unit, right, about whether or not to work the murders that are happening and try to roll those up or stay on the wire and go for what McNulty wants to get, which is, of course, Stringer Bell above all anything else. So anyway. I say all that to say cracks that are going to turn into major faults are kind of uh, exposed to the audience, brought to bear in this particular episode. So you said cracks. Um, what I got took away from this episode was that there were some humblings that needed to happen. Mm. And they definitely went down in this. And, you know, it, we'll get into it a little deeper because um, I'm sure it, it will pop up as a best scene or just just will pop up as we break down what happened in this episode. Uh, as you mentioned, there is a there is a crack in the major case unit. The major case unit gets humbled big time in this episode because they have been going around putting together these fabulous cases like, you know, they just put they just solved the murders, you know, in season two of, of 14 dead women. Mm -hmm. That's not easy to do. So they just. Unlike the, the previous two seasons, this is the most certain, most sure, and most power the major crimes unit has had thus far in the wire. Right. So they're supposed to have their shit together, mm -hmm. in other words. And they get a major humbling in this. You just talked about Marlo a minute ago, is that, you know, um, and, and we'll get into this when, when we just, you know, when we give our, our necessary time to uh, Russell Stringer Bell, because this was his plan, all right? His plan was... Which, on the face of it, I don't want to get too into it, but it was dumb. It was dumb. Okay? It was, you know what? Why I got was this dumb? It was dumb. I, I'll explain. It, if okay. you think about it, it was dumb. And most importantly, this is where you see his weakness when he doesn't have Avon with him. This is where you see his arrogance. His arrogance, yes. Yeah. And that's why I said a humbling needed to happen to some right. people. And he is one of them because he had this grand idea. Uh, that he got from, you know, uh, Macroeconomics 101, that th he was about to run things a totally different way. And as Avon, his, his words just rang so loud as he told him when they had kind of their first 
real argument that we've seen on on screen or or second if you want to because they did argue over Orlando mm-hmm. is he told him the street is the street always that was his words to him like hey man later for the fucking books dude is some shit that needs to happen the street way you may not like the shit but the shit has to go down here regardless and Stringer kind of is forgetting that and thus he has run against somebody who I would say Marlo was out of fucks but that would presume he had any. He, yeah, I don't had. even think this kid was born with any. So right. doesn't really matter. So when you run up against somebody who is okay with casualty, okay with collateral damage, okay with shit being chaotic, you run into a different type of person. Like, what is it that uh, was said? I think it was in Dark Knight. Some men just want to see the world burn. Yeah. This is Marlo. Okay. Right. And he, when you run against them types, there's no book or no class that's going to help you with that. It's only one way to handle it. So I'll get more into that. But there was uh, definitely some humbling, some humble pie being eaten by a few people. And uh, one of the other cracks is a a philosophy crack that's uh, occurring in major crimes because McNulty is self-righteous. McNulty is so obnoxious. (laughs) Okay. And once again, he is he wants Stringer Bell so bad that he is refusing to see all reason. And because of that, that is partly how they wind up getting humbled because of McNulty being having so much tunnel vision uh, as he tends to do when he wants to not necessarily bring justice. I mean, he's not after Stringer for justice. He's after Stringer for revenge and to win. And when those are your motivations, it is often hard for you to have an unbiased, clear headed strategy to something of this magnitude. So we see him being uh, kind of humbled and, as well. And there's, and there's a good there's a dichotomy there between two characters, between McNulty and Bunny Colvin. Yes. Because this is also the episode where Bunny Colvin completely loses faith. Bunny Colvin loses faith, right? And his answer to that is to do something that on its face actually would work. It, okay. oh, it, it totally would work. Right, right. right. He, his, his, his reaction, McNulty's reaction is to go completely one way. Bunny's reaction is to look at the entire problem, the entire drug war in a more holistic way and say, forget about trying to win. I don't want to try to win. I want to try to make a difference. And those are two completely different things. I want to be impactful. And those two men win at those things because this is where also, we should say, Hamsterdam basically gets established in this particular episode as well. Correct. This, we're seeing the, that's why I said is it's so, the, usually the beginnings of the seasons of The Wire are foundational, even though there's a lot of, leftovers from old situations that we know, but they're still foundational as to what will be some of the core themes that David Simon and Ed Burns decide to attack. And one of them is the war on drugs. And they do that exceptionally well through Bunny Colvin, who whose entire mentality represents the futility of that war and yeah. why you can't wage a, a, a war on something as nebulous as drugs. Right. Uh, okay. All right. I got a war on the helmet sitting behind me. What the fuck does that mean? Like, yeah, just like right. you know, and mm-hmm. so he, what you're seeing through him and how he is choosing to manage this district is based off his frustration and 
really seeing that they are engaged in something that is senseless and stupid. Um, all right. With that being said, let's get on to some uh, recap or a recap rather of episode two here. So we see Omar. <laughs> hey, he told y'all, he yeah. told Stringer, or rather he told Butchie, I should say, he coming. <laughs> He's yeah. coming for Stringer and he right. gives no fucks. And so if that means him dressing up in uh, wig wear right. <laughs> and playing an old lady with his newfound expanded crew. I think it's an and, old man. I think he's an old man. Yeah, he's not a lady. He's well, not like, I think he was, he was just wearing a, a, a rather... He's like, but he, he had was, the hat on. I think he's an old man. Yeah, you're right. He might be an old man. By the way, I like I like the production value that Omar is using now. We haven't seen <laughs> we've seen Omar be a stick up like guy. The showmanship, right? But this was a caper. They yeah, pulled you're right. a, this, this was just a, a straight. This one is just straight stick up. They pulled a caper. This was like some. This involved, you know, like if you watch Ocean's Ocean's Eleven, and in order for them to rob the Bellagio, they got to pull cons and they got to do it. This was like a mini version of that. They had to pretend like they knew somebody in the back room and con someone and have costumes and Omar had to use an yeah, accent. Yeah, props. But props. This is a caper. A caper. I like that. I like a caper every now and again. I, I like that. That's a great way to describe it. Omar pulls his first caper. Caper. Yeah. Yes. Because up until this point, it, he usually just shows up with the shotgun and say, you either give me the money and the drugs. Or, or you die. You, or you die. Right. So, <laughs> you know what? This to me. All this indicates is that Omar cares about the craft. Yes. And he's always trying to challenge himself. Yes. Right? He's growing. Yeah, he's, 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 you're right. He is growing. Spent the whole summer in the gym with Elijah Wan. Now he wants to show his footwork on the post. I like it. Yeah. It, it's a good look for him, for sure. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, a humbling happened. And the cops, uh, sweet Jesus, to borrow Omar's phrase, they get humbled. Yes. You know, they've been going around solving these fantastic cases and now they come against uh, they can't get much on the wires because, you know, criminals adapt. And especially if they, you know, logic would say as they pulled off some of these major busts that they have before and, you know, realize that even if these guys are on opposite sides or not necessarily operating out of the same territory, they hear shit. They know yeah. the cops, how they operate. So, of course, with them having as much success as they had as, as previous wire on previous wiretaps. It was only a matter of time before they figured out, like, hey, we should probably stop talking on the phone about our illegal drug activity sure. and our our murderous pursuits probably mm -hmm. should happen. And so they are having or were having a very difficult time getting Cheese, Prop Joe's nephew, on the wire talking about various drug dealer activities. And they finally get him on the wire and he is talking about his dog, only they think he means dog as in D-A-W-G, as in a person. Mm -hmm. But he actually means a, literally a dog <laughs> that he had killed uh, during his drug or during his dog fighting escapade, his dog lost. Looks like it was a little scamming and cheating going on. So he killed the dog afterwards and they embarrass him themselves by bringing him in. They're interrogating him. This is one of the interrogations that doesn't actually wind up with somebody getting their ass whooped as right. many of their interrogations do. Mm -hmm. And uh, they find out that he did not indeed kill a person. He killed an actual dog and they look stupid. Um, so, uh, not a good day for major crime units in this particular episode. Thomas J. Carcetti continues to be a smooth political operative as Stan Trump, a.k.a. Stan Valchek, um, <laughs> arranges a meeting between him and Burrell, who he is grooming as an ally. And as Van said, this is a major component to season three. Not only Carcetti uh, how he's operating as a politician, but the fact that he 
has Burrell kind of in his hooks a little bit. So mm. definitely a relationship to pay attention to. Um, the major crimes unit is, is kind of, despite the resources they've been giving, they're kind of bumbling, if you will. I mean, not just with what happened with Cheese, but there's also a bit of a fracture because there are is clearly a war going on that McNulty totally wants to ignore because McNulty wants to pay attention to Stringer and he has yet to see or understand that the two are related. Uh, speaking of McNulty, he does something that I think we teased um, a little bit in the uh, first episode of this season, which is he is starting to look into D'Angelo's suicide. Yes. And he is planting some seeds there that are very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, as he figures out, like on one end, he's, he didn't understand this drug war that was happening kind of right underneath his nose. On the other hand, he pretty much solved this uh, business with D'Angelo's quote-unquote suicide in like 10 minutes. Right. He just looked at a file and was like, oh, yeah. This is how it happened. It was yeah. like, damn. <laughs> well, he, to his point, he talked about how the state police basically bungled the entire scene and the investigation from the from the get-go. So there wasn't very much that he had to do to put it together. It was all right there, but it's almost like they weren't even trying to no, get to the bottom of what happened to like, a man in prison. Right. Yeah. Let's just do this as a suicide. As Van mentioned, um, you know, Bunny Colvin you're starting to see the makings of of a revolutionary, I should say, right yeah. here. You know, Dozerman winds up uh, getting jacked up over a hand-to-hand. And uh, Bunny Coven, it, it sparks something in him. And he's, dissatisfi- he's just completely dissatisfied with what they're doing. Um, it's useless. It's pointless. It's putting them in danger. And it's like it's not making a dent, any dent whatsoever in the drug war, quote-unquote, that's going on in Baltimore. So a lot of different threads get created. And then, um, you know, these are little tentacles that you have to follow throughout. But now we get to our character deep dive and we decided that we were going to take a hard look at Thomas J. Carchetti, the councilman who suddenly has a burst of ambition and I guess boredom in which he is begins to torment, uh, torment slash make it to an ally Burrell, as I said. Little did I know that after I saw this um, the first time, The Wire, um, that uh, Carcetti would go on to be Littlefinger. Little did I know. Then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Which do you think of it? You think of him more as Littlefinger than you do Carcetti, I assume, right? I think of him. It's a tie. Like, I'm rewatching Game of Thrones right now. It's it, This is, I call this um, the Han Jones debacle. Uh, there's a lot of guys out there who are Han Jones, right? And what I mean Han Jones is, is he Han Solo or is he Indiana Jones? Mm. It's like I've talked about this before. Is he Han Solo? Is he Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones is his own movie. Han, Han Solo is a much more iconic character. I'm He's sorry. Cast. Yeah. 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 But, but, but to me, this is a Han Jones situation with Carcetti and Littlefinger. As a matter of fact, not only that, but. Carcetti and Littlefinger are related. They're from the same house. I like to think of Carcetti as as Littlefinger's long lost uh, like progeny down, down, down the way. I know that Westeros is a completely different planet or whatever. It's a fantasy thing. Separated by probably thousands of years. Thousands of years. But (laughs) 
if you look at the finagling, and I'm, this is probably not a novel thought. Other people have, I'm sure, said this. But if you look at the finagling and all the things that uh, Carcetti does to gain power, it's kind of what Littlefinger was trying to do. Littlefinger says chaos is a ladder. And Carcetti basically uses the chaos of West Baltimore to propel himself upwardly politically. Now, when I look at this character, I look at a guy who must be in a really interesting place. He is white. He is educated. He is married. He is straight. He is handsome. Okay? But he is the underdog. And psychologically, for someone who's been told that privilege and education and playing the game the right way will result in America handing you the keys to the kingdom, what must it be like for a guy like Carcetti to realize that he's going to have to scheme his way into what he wants because he's not the right shade to get things done in Baltimore. Now, and from the- that standpoint, man, if you think about it, that really makes your Carcetti Littlefinger comparison accurate because that was Littlefinger's problem, too, mm. is that not it wasn't about complexion. It was about family. House. And it was about he didn't and house. He didn't come from the right house. So he was never going to be able to get to the throne the traditional way. He's right. going to have to like marry into it or do a lot of backward scheming. He made himself mm. invaluable to people that did have a beeline to the throne. And that was the only way he was going to get there because the odds were stacked against him, despite the fact that he was, I mean, granted, running a brothel. It was a frowned upon profession mm-hmm. <laughs> during the time, I suppose. Um you know, it wasn't getting him judged, but people were looking at it like, we can't have a dude that's running a brothel. You're mm-hmm. trying to run run these seven kingdoms. Like, that right. shit ain't happening, right? Right, right. So uh, he was therefore forced to use his intellect and wit. And I'm sure he thought, he's like, hold up. I'm white. I'm straight. I'm smart. I got a little money. What the fuck can I get there, you know, yeah. on, on, yeah. This, on this throne, right? And yeah. to your point, with Carcetti, it's the same, it's the same thing. White, handsome, educated, got a little family going, income coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, hell, can't I be mayor of Baltimore? Yeah, and what he's going to see is that in order to be the mayor, he's going to have to take advantage of the chaos that is going on in Baltimore and create a little bit of his own. Interesting thing about Carcady's character, though, is that you get a sense because of who Carcetti is. Now, he is both, you get a sense that he is both completely career-driven, self-centered, a narcissist, but also cares about people, okay? Kind of like the Bill Clinton situation. Bill Clinton was a self-centered, sex-addicted narcissist Obviously, guy all about himself, brilliant man. But Bill Clinton, you got the feeling that he actually cared about people. Now, we're saying this, and any day, Jelaine Maxwell might say something crazy, and we might have to completely... I'd be an edit to this. 
Editors know that they We might have to completely change our opinion on President Clinton. But to this point, I see a lot of similarities in those characters. Carcetti would do the right thing once he is mayor, but he would do anything to get there. His ambition is certainly uh, something that works both for him and against him. It's kind of like everybody with, with your best traits is that Whatever you think is your best trait is also the, your worst trait. You know, if your loyalty, mm-hmm. your your if your if loyalty is your best trait, you're probably loyal to a fault to the right. point where it's it's cost you. In his case, he's ambitious, which there's nothing wrong with ambitious, but he's ambitious to a fault. Mm. Um, and I think you'll see a lot from Carcetti both now and when going forward. So I was trying to figure out, like, what kind of politician is he? Um, and, and to that matter, uh, what kind of white politician is he in a all black city? Because there's certainly like I wouldn't call Carcetti, um, you know, there's this trope or narrative about, you know, the white liberal. I wouldn't say Carcetti fits that necessarily. I, I agree. I don't think he does either. I don't think he fits that at all. He is definitely not the like the uh, the, the white liberals that we saw um, uh, the caricatures and get out. Right. Like he's definitely not gonna be like, yo, I voted for Obama twice. Like he's yeah. not that white liberal, right? Right. Yeah, he's got a little more savvy to him, and frankly, I think he's a, a lot more informed. Yeah. Um. Then and he doesn't have at least. I mean, I'm thinking about what we've seen thus far, and of course, what we know going forward. Uh, he doesn't have superficial relationships with his with black people or black constituents. Like he doesn't. Yeah. Like there's some. There's some real trust and earnestness coming in, and especially in later on in, in a few episodes when we when um, or, or later on this season as we begin to meet more of and, and be exposed to more of those relationships. So he is somebody that, based off what we know of him, could completely survive in a all black city and in, in an all black city with black political dynamics. Mm-hmm. He he kind of he can make it. Like there's nothing. Uh, he doesn't have some of the he has some of the blind spots but none of the huge landmine cultural blind spots that would make it problematic to have somebody like him uh who's uh you know in power and what is the brilliance kind of of this character is that uh, he is actually pretty adept at navigating kind of uh, both sides of things if you will um he knows how to navigate and handle Stan Valchek because his his demeanor with him and just the way he's trying to relate to him is different than when he's with Burrell. Mm-hmm. It's like he's pretty he's he's a uh, a white politician in an all black city who understands how to code switch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that is definitely Carcetti. So just as impressive as maybe his actual political credentials is the fact that he is able to navigate um, a pretty complicated world, um, both from a racial standpoint and a social economic standpoint. And beneath all that, all the ambition and the ego and the typical things that politician ha- has is that there are these windows with him where you see he does care, as you were discussing, like he does he does care about the lives of, of Baltimore residents to a degree. Now, it yeah. may not be number one on the priority list. But he gives but somewhat of a shit. But he gives a shit. Like it's yeah. it's on the list, right. right? It ain't one, but it ain't twenty five. Okay, right. Yeah, <laughs> right? For sure. So, you know, from that standpoint, I think that's what prevents 
at least I never looked I never looked at Carcetti as 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 bad or as an asshole. I never looked at him as that. I looked at him as just kind of a politician, if yeah. you will. In the finest form. Um it when you talk about politicians, you don't grade politicians on the same scale that you do normal people. Because mm-hmm. normal people, you really shouldn't judge anyone on the scale, but normal people are seen to be either decent or devious, right? Uh, politicians are inherently devious. The game is a bunch of horse trading for the very lives of human beings. You know, who wakes up in the morning having to make the decision about whether or not they vote for little black kids to get health care? You who to have to vote no to that is just abhorrent. You, you know, you, you know, you know what I mean? So by by nature, politicians are devious. You only expect a certain degree of decency to them. You expect them to want to do the right thing, even if they can't all the time. You expect them to want to do the right thing. And that's what you're hoping for. That's the best you can hope for, for any politician. And when I say any politician, I mean any politician, okay? My favorite politician in this entire country is Michael Tubbs, okay? Michael Tubbs from Stockton, Great uh, documentary coming out. Stockton on my mind. You'll fall in love with Michael Tubbs too. I hope that Michael Tubbs can continue to do the right thing. But I know that being a politician, it's, you, all, you, you can't always. You just can't. Sometimes you have to make deals and do things and take money. That is at cross purposes with that. So I think Carcetti, while he's not giving you know everybody universal basic income, he is trying to get to a point to fix some of the issues that go on in Baltimore. Yeah, I don't know if I would describe his politics as centrist necessarily. Mm-hmm. They're closer to centrists and they're closer to say like Alex, uh, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. Like he's not Green New Deal, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know if he's as rigid as as centrist. And I think they they wrote his character in a way that was supposed to be kind of universally relatable from a political standpoint. A couple little interesting uh uh, facts about Aiden Gilling, who is the actor that plays um, Thomas J. Carcetti and Lord Baelish from uh, uh, from Game of Thrones. Uh, he is um, he's Irish mm-hmm. and he has a bit of a thick Irish accent. It was kind of funny to see him try to grapple with that accent, mostly in Game of Thrones. And this, I mean, when you, you hear what he sounds like kind of in real life and then you watch him on the wire it's like damn man you did a a, a pretty good job um uh, and for those who are sort of savvy super veteran wire lovers um you know bob colesbury was one of the uh, creators of the show um he played uh, i think it was detective ray cole on here and um you know the, he died uh unfortunately and aiden gillen was his last casting call uh, he was the last actor that he met uh, met with as they were putting to, together this season. And, you know, he wanted him for this role. And uh, David Simon told Aiden, Gill- Aiden Gillen that it really didn't matter what they thought of him because they knew it was Bob Colesbury's wish that he played Thomas J. Carcetti, even if they thought they sucked, thought he sucked rather, that they were going to um, go ahead and... Wow and put him in this role regardless, just out of respect to Bob Colesbury. Um, And also, so uh, season three, 
you know, I, I think we mentioned this when we first started this podcast is that the wire hung in the balance in terms of whether or not to renew or not to renew pretty much every season. Didn't know if it was coming back. That was kind of the the uh, the world or the vortex that they were in. And so once again, uh, with season three, it was another situation where uh, when it was over, as it was closing, not sure if it was coming back or not. They wrote it like it wasn't coming back, by the way. So that's something also to keep in mind as we watch. But David Simon had pitched an idea of doing a spinoff of The Wire called The Hall, which would have been with Thomas J. Carcetti as the main character where he was going to be doing The Wire and The Hall at the same time and even wrote a pilot script for The Hall, which would center on Baltimore City politics. So Interesting. Was, yeah, so Thomas J. Carcetti almost became even more of a major character than what we've seen. So it was, uh, I could easily see a spinoff, by the way. Like, that's I not difficult seen it too. to imagine. Yeah. And I, I like stuff like that because there's something that they don't do anymore in television. And, I, and the, the TV heads will know it, but the average person might not know. It's called a backdoor pilot. Are you familiar with the backdoor pilot? I am not educators, man. Okay, so the backdoor pilot is this. I'll give you examples of it, but they're all going to escape me now. The backdoor pilot is we have a show, right? You and me have a sitcom. It's like, uh, I'm a crazy conservative black guy. You are Jamel Hill. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, like, oh, right. Oh, right. Uh, basically. And then we have this back and forth every week. But then one day, my crazy, wacky basketball playing cousin from uh, Michigan comes to live with us. He just got drafted to an NBA team. He has to stay with me. He's played by a big up-and-coming star for some reason. This isn't just a regular guest spot. Like, he's played by somebody that we know has a contract with NBC or something like that. So he comes in, and he is, like, a big part of this episode. The audience loves him, blah, 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 blah. Then the network announces that that guy has his own show in our universe, right? So what they did was like, i give you an example. Perfect backdoor pilot. Denise Huxtable is going to Hillman University, right? She's going away to college. Bill goes away to college with her, right? Backdoor pilot for her own show, A Different World. So if The Wire would have done like a backdoor pilot with Carcetti because they don't do those anymore. Not really. They don't really do them anymore. And so if they would have done that, I'd have been all in. And there's so many shows. I want you guys to go look up all the shows and then tweet us back. Look up all the shows that have like Perfect Strangers. You don't even know. Perfect Strangers, I, th I think, is a backdoor pilot to Family Matters. Like that it's makes like sense. Yeah. it's like you, yeah. you know what I mean. I think all of yeah. these shows exist in the same kind of universe and stuff like that. So if they'd have done that, a spinoff with Carcetti, hey, it's me. I gotta go and run for mayor in some other town, or maybe Carcetti, you know, maybe Carcetti goes to Annapolis, and then it would be the hall in Annapolis once he became governor. I like stuff like that. Backdoor pilots. But, but here's the problem with the wire. If you think about it, there was a lot of 
backdoor pilot potential in this whole series. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I think there was huge potential in season four, to be honest. Oh, um, yeah. Hell, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, I guess that would have been, that might have been something that would have created a little bit of discussion. It's like, out of all the things that you see, you know, what, I, I don't know. I would definitely watch a Carcetti focused back, you know, like backdoor pilot, as you call mm-hmm. it. I would, I would definitely have watched a spinoff. But mm-hmm. I'm not com- completely convinced it would have been the best spinoff to do. Probably so, wouldn't have been. Yeah. Yeah. And especially yeah. since um, uh, the way David Simon explains it is that 25% of the, the, the wire world would have operated within the hall world. So it would have been interesting to see how those two things were combined. Now let's uh, talk about some of the best scenes in there. I feel like there's one, even though there's a lot, to me, this, this episode had a lot of really good little scenes, but I feel like it's one big scene that is the scene. So what did you have? Okay. So I, 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 my first one is not actually a scene. It's a saga. The whole Herc and Carver. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you something. One guy, one act, one time. Let me tell you something. That's so real. That of all the things (laughs) of the wire that are real, that might be the realest. When we were 17 years old, my entire crew, and you guys, I saw you guys always talking about me and the homies. I got another story about me and the homies. Uh oh, is, is this a van sidebar? Uh, van Lathan sidebar right now. Okay. Uh, uh, me and the homies, we, we were sitting around. I don't know how this came up. And the, the, it's such a, it, and nobody be offended. It's just kind of the thing 17 year old boys talk about and stuff like that. Or maybe some of y'all go, we didn't talk about this shit. But like, I have a feeling older guys talk about this too. Yeah, my, my, homeboy, my homeboy goes, hey, hey. Because, like, they, we were talking about Bill Gates. Bill Gates was on. It was like, yo, Bill Gates got billions of dollars. I was thinking, damn, man, a billion dollars. Think about a billion dollars. How much money is a billion dollars? And my homeboy goes, all right, for a billion dollars, would you give a dude a hand job? Would you jack a dude off for a billion dollars? And at that age, I'm thinking, no, of course I wouldn't jack a guy off for a billion dollars. I'm not, I'm not jacking anybody off for a billion. I'm never. Round up and down, my crew was like, nah, man, of course not, bro. Dog, I'm straight hetero, dog. I would never. I'm, I would never, dog. I would never even, dog, even putting them thoughts in my mind. I got questions about you, dog. What's up with you? And one of my homeboys went, hell yeah. Hell, a billion dollars? Hell yeah, I'll do it. Jamel, he never lived it down. Ever. He never lived it down and at this point we're way more evolved we're made, it's completely different but i remember like because now I, y'all ask the same question same group everybody be like Nick, what? for how long people right. got presents I, I, I'll, th- I'll throw in 20 minutes yeah do i have to get <laughs> like, look you start asking questions now do i have to get it on my hands like after and all <laughs> right. you, you know what i'm saying like you start you start asking questions but like at that point is like and at his wedding reception at his wedding reception, everybody was like, I can't have, listen, I am so happy for you guys. It's amazing. You guys are going to have a long, prosperous, beautiful marriage unless somebody comes along with a billion dollars. And then blah, blah, blah. And then, and I remember his oh, wife, I remember his wife, his wife was like, 
what you mean if somebody come along with a billion dollars? It's like nothing. Don't worry about it. Mazel tov. You guys did the whole. But yeah, so that is That's so real. So when I saw that entire thing, I, I even the first time I saw it, I was like, hurt. Don't answer. Like, don't answer. Like, don't answer. Don't answer. By the way, Mary Kay and Ashley Olsen had just turned 18 that year. So, you know, almost. okay, so I was thinking this too because when he says Mary Kay, I was like, mm, how old were they? Because I don't know about this one. I do not know about this one at all. I was like, eh. I mean, mm. all right, they, it's legal. It is right. legal. It is legal. Right? It it's just, would be, just legal. It's, it's just, it's just legal. legal. He it's, just got it. It's like Jerry Seinfeld, 1992, just But legal. it's one of those, though, because he set up as they're just barely legal. It's like, how long you been scouting? How, yeah, it's crazy. That, then, it gets little, then it gets a little dicey. Right. For sure. But this, I mean, that game is what? That's just the, a, another version of um, Fuck, Mary Kill. Fuck, Mary right? Kill. Same thing. Same so thing. So I got Carcetti. So I got that whole side. I got Carcetti. Carcetti and Burrell horse training. Yep. Uh, the movie theater scene when they all see that, each other. to me, is the funniest scene in this entire episode. The movie theater scene is fantastic when everyone sees each other in the movie theater. Uh, Cheese's confession is great. Shows you that Cheese's got a little bit more smarts than you think he does. Uh, Bodie and uh, Marlo on the corner. Uh, every time Marlo speaks, it's quotable. It Go is. back up there and pack up your people. I'm being a gentleman about it for the time being. Love it. Um, and then at the end, I personally feel like uh, the best scene of the episode is when Bunny Colvin comes to Jesus. Yeah. like Now, what? you're talking about the come to Jesus with uh, Deacon or the come to Jesus, the paper bag? The paper bag, basically. The paper bag scene, I'm... Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. That is the best scene of this episode. Right. So those are those will be mine. What would be some of yours? Um, so let's go back for a second to the the movie scene. Okay. Right. <laughs> the funniest part about that is the genuine surprise that that Poot has, and also Bodie. They like when Poot's like, wait, y'all go to the movies? Y'all go to the movies? <laughs> right. Like, oh my God, all we know of you is that you just like to, you know, beat up young black men and make their lives a living hell. We didn't know that y'all actually like have fun. And on top of that, the hilarity of them going to see what I assume was a foreign film because they mentioned subtitles. Now, Hurt doesn't really strike me, Hurt nor Carver. <laughs> they ain't the subtitle type of dudes. Don't right? seem like it. Yeah, doesn't seem like that. Like right. They're not going to go in there. film, eh. Uh-uh. Yeah, don't seem like they would really appreciate uh, Parasite very much. Might be a little bit too much going on. That for might be them. too much. Yeah, right, it's a little too advanced. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so the, it reminded me of how you know when you were growing up and you figured out your teacher had a real life that she wasn't mm-hmm. just like the teacher twenty four seven. You know what I'm saying? When you like, holy shit, mm-hmm. her name is. Beatrice? What? Yeah, she got a right. first name? Like, yeah. who is this? Because whenever it was a couple times I remember growing up where I would see my teachers out in like real life, like mm-hmm. doing like things. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, shout out to they my dad. shop for yeah, groceries? To, I should, we, we saw, we saw, <laughs> shout out to my dad. Shout out to your dad. I, I see you. We, we saw my fourth grade teacher in uh, Piggly Wiggly. And my, and my dad was like, ain't that your teacher? I was like, yeah. He was like, she wear them jeans in the classroom? 
I never forget it. I didn't even know what it meant until much later on. Didn't even know that what it meant to. That is hilarious. Didn't know what it meant until much later on. Hey, Mr. Lathan. Hey, yourself. I'm like, Jesus Next you know, Christ. your dad was at all the parents' <laughs> conferences after that. He was like, man, but I think I need to go talk to your teacher about your homework. Right. I think we need to do this. Such a great observation. They divorced now, so I can, I'm not right now my dad, so whatever. <laughs> I was like, did you die mm-hmm. him? But perhaps the even funnier part of that entire exchange is where Herc and Carver peep Dozeman's girl. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. was like, which I gotta say, when he walked out the theater, I was like, that's you? Like, yeah, get didn't see it. that coming. Yeah. Didn't see that coming, right? Yeah. I think I almost said this, is that they didn't walk in together? Did those well, that's it? what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah, I was just like, well, how did they not see them? I assume they didn't walk in together. Right, but, maybe you know, they, they met him later or something. If we wanted to pick a nit, we could, because it'd be like, well, if y'all were all hanging out, you would have known that she was hey. an attractive woman before mm-hmm. she walked in. But Herc not only peeps her, but it's like he does a subtle look at his date like, what Damn. am I with right now? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. what, what am I doing right this now? This man dating <laughs> Vivica Fox. You right? Know <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, wow, because he really did uh, look back at his girl like, I think I might have a... A dime as in two fives right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, so he he was not particularly uh, pleased with that. Um, uh, another scene that I thought um, was more, I mean, it, it wasn't that it was necessarily a, uh, a great scene, but it was the payoff for something that we have, we have been sort of setting up for a while is, it was kind of funny though. I will say now that I think about it, but, Ronnie with the strong move to the hole on Seven Daniels. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember how you wanted to say to have your cake and eat it too? Slides the hand up the leg. Uh-huh, right. She's a she's a closer. Yep. <laughs> so, she's a closer. After dissing, after dissing McNulty. Because McNulty hit her with the head nod. She just kind of looked like uh that was so last year. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then she went on to, to Daniels. And now that, sure it's a did. thing. I yeah. It's like, who at this point now as as we get these glimpses into how quickly his marriage has fallen apart, it went from separate rooms to day out the house to, oh, he got his own place now. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I love that about Daniels. I love that Daniels, <laughs> Daniels went, you don't normally go straight white girl. You like, you ease into it, right? You like, you, like right. You normally go, okay. You know, you go sister. Then you go, you know, maybe sister from the Midwest. Like, it, 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 I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Thanks, man. I'm just joking. Yeah, he do it, y'all. Yeah, he do it. He just shaded the fuck out of it. I'm just joking. But he went straight white girl. He was like, yo, I need a change. So he went straight <laughs> like, white girl. Here's some change I could believe in. Ronnie, there you go. what's going on? Ronnie, what's popping? Right. Um, another really funny scene is McNulty and Bunk running game at the bar. Love and it. And I got to say, that plan... It's kind of not bad. Kind of worked. That that I mean that I saw how that easily could work. You know, because right, uh, like most women, you don't like to be hounded by some drunk, obnoxious guy. You don't know somebody comes in and and rescues you from that person. You are definitely going to be grateful. So I'm like, I see how that could work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was you know kind of one of the 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 funnier uh, scenes in it. But you know, as we both said, by far like the best scene of this episode was definitely you know, Bunny and the paper bag speech. And the, the thing about um, this series is that 
it, it, whenever they pick its moments like that, it's always worth it. It reminded me of when D'Angelo was giving them game over the chessboard, mm. right? Yeah. It's like they uh, they pick these moments to have these kind of grander speeches that are given, and they most all, almost always live up to, if not exceed, the expectations. So this is something that, you know, The Wire just really, really does quite well. And can I say uh, something about that scene real quick? Sure. Is That scene is Bunny Colvin basically saying that he's sick and tired of people being unsafe. He... W- w- there's a major conversation happening right now about policing versus public safety in America, right? Whether or not the policing that we are funding is ending up with a better quality of public safety. What Bunny Colvin is essentially saying is that I'm sick of my career not having resulted in people being safer. So, there was a pact made in the past that allowed people to pass by each other without a constant state of friction. It worked then. Let's see if it can work again. And it happened that way by him seeing the inefficiency of the police department and the ineffectiveness of them to successfully destroy the ills that are haunting society. And so he was like, let's call a truce and see if that truce makes these streets any safer. And I, it, it's a brilliant scene. It's a brilliant scene. Well, I, and it was something so uh, uh, insightful and um, that he said in this episode when he, was, when he said, this is what makes a good night on my watch, absence of a negative. Mm. And that was, that really registered. And showing, and, and people have to understand, like the parts of this ineptitude that David Simon and Ed Burns and, uh, that they were showing about how they manipulate the statistics is real. Like that mm. is a real thing that happens is when you have cities that begin to get under pressure for their murder rate or for everything else. Um, uh, or, you know, just this idea, whenever there's this, uh, you know, explosion of fear in the populace that the streets aren't safe, you suddenly see these gestures many of which are just symbolic and often fake of trying to convince people that things are not as bad as they seem right or trying to convince people how necessary and needed the police are are it, um I, I couldn't it was a really bad shooting in detroit uh in my hometown recently um where multiple people were shot and one of the first things that uh i think it was the police chief he uh, he said was that well, this is he immediately tied that to defunding the police, which was interesting, mm-hmm. right? Is that e- even though this is not to diminish or or belittle the crime that happens in Detroit or for that matter, other major cities where violence is an issue, but to use that in that moment as a way to make an argument in a case for something that has become a very real conversation across the country was, as I said, interesting time to bring that up, right? <laughs> right, and go. so. Uh, there is obviously, as we're in this point in the wire, there is suddenly grave concern about the number of murders that are happening in Baltimore and uh, in an effort to protect the mayor's reputation. Their asses to, are on the line. Their asses are on the line because one thing that you notice as a constant theme and thread throughout this is that everything is done usually to save somebody's ass or protect it. It's mm-hmm. not really about the public. It's about one of those two things. Right. And this is no uh, exception. 
Uh, so we did in this episode get to see a couple new characters um, that will, they're still bit characters, but they will be a presence uh, throughout most of the rest of the wire. We get Vincent, mm-hmm. the rim shop owner, yes. <laughs> where Marlo, uh, he will spend quite a bit of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, where he's kind of, uh, uh, Vincent is kind of uh, Marlo's version of Butchie, if right. you will. Yeah. Everybody's got a consigliere, uh, it seems like, uh, on the wire. And you also, when when before uh, Buddy Colvin gives that paper bag speech, who does he go to see? Deacon, mm. who is another new character here on the wire. Deacon, um, his real name is Melvin Little Williams. And he is the person who is the inspiration behind Avon Barksdale. So that is, Deacon is the real life Avon Barksdale mm. um, for those Wire fans who may not have known that. Now, uh, to give you a couple interesting stats here on Melvin Little Williams is he was a former Baltimore drug kingpin who was brought down by Ed Burns, who is the co-creator of The Wire when he was on the force. When Melvin Little Williams was running things in Baltimore, Guess how much money he made a day, or I'm sorry, grossed a day. I don't know what the net was, but the gross as a kingpin, over a million dollars a day. Wow. million dollars a day. Uh, he was sentenced to 34 years, but he got out of prison a little early in 03, right around the time, um, you know, the wire was, uh, was getting started and, and getting going. And so it burns. And I was about to say, man, you want to talk about life coming full circle in an interesting way? Could you imagine the detective that busted you saying, hey, I got this new TV show going, TV show going about The Wire. Want right. to come be a part of it? <laughs> right. I mean, but look, I, I could see down the, wor- down the road, like McNulty, that, look, between McNulty and Stringer, especially, he was going hard at Stringer. But you know what? Stringer's not the one I could see McNulty working with. You think it's Avon? It, no. The person I could have seen McNulty working with on some level was Bodie. Oh, well, yeah, I, I get, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I think that there was a weird, and we're going to see it later, there was a weird respect and almost admiration that McNulty had for Stringer. It was weird. Like, he, it, it, it was different. He, like, he saw something of himself in Stringer for some reason. I've, I've never really been able to articulate it quite right, but there's a scene later on, I can't give anything away, but it's when you can tell McNulty is surprised at certain aspects of Stringer's character. Yeah, I know, I know what you're talking or, or, about. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I could have seen there being some sort of some sort of criminal reconciliation that would have happened later on between those two guys. Well, and you could also you could sense there was a, a little bit of respect there because remember sure. how the wire started? It's the courtroom scene with those two guys. With those two guys, and then mm-hmm. later. When he Nicely was able done. to give Stringer a little comeuppance, mm-hmm. he says it back to him. Well done. Mm-hmm. So there was some there was some sense of begrudging respect between the two of them. So that certainly is not an off base, uh, um, uh, not an off base sort of uh, claim on your part because I think uh, that there there might have been some case where they or something where they might have worked together. Um, you know. Who knows? Especially right. again, like I said, I give it, I give it to Melvin Williams, man. Like <laughs> I'm making a million dollars a day to cop that busted me. Don't know. Hey, don't know. We got be friends. Yeah, you gotta come at me with more than a sad card, dude. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's something. Um, so those are a couple people who are now new to the wire world. But you know, 
I, look, we got some old faces in in new spaces, and right. oh yeah, Donetta back on yeah. the scene. Yeah, Donetta, 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 not Donetta, y'all. At Donette. 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 Back on the scene. She's back. Stringer came back to come back because one of Stringer's biggest weapons, big, <laughs> right? <laughs> one of his Definitely. biggest weapons is that meat. Donette. Yeah. <laughs> and at this point, as people see in the scene, uh, D'Angelo's son is a is a little, uh, a little older. He's, uh, you know, he's he's growing like a weed. And I thought from a not just a realistic standpoint but also a cultural standpoint. Hmm. I a understated scene in this episode is when McNulty picks up D'Angelo's son and Donette mm. was like, "Could you please, please put him, put him down? down?" Yeah. Right? Um one he's the police and the police have not been the greatest representative in her life, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh it's be- yeah, I'm sure in her mind it's like because of the police that her father or not her father, her son does not have a father. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the police have disrupted her world. But, man, you and I know. Black folk, kind of picking up the kids. Don't touch my kids. That's weird. Don't that's pres- touch the kids. Th- that, like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's presumptuous in a whole nother that's way. presumptuous. Right. That's presumptuous in a whole nother way. Don't come in the crib picking up the hey. kids, touching the kids. Like, Stranger? Yeah. Picking up the kids? Nah. We don't Black even know. If, yeah. We don't even like know. like to get dealt with, as Smokey said. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just chill out with that. That was weird. McNulty. Bad form, dog. But I'm glad. It was It was not actually. Here's the thing. I thought it was realistic because it's not realistic that somebody like McNulty would be arrogant enough to do that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's also realistic that he would get checked on it by somebody who's like, exactly. you might be the long arm of the law right now, but right. you're going to need to put my son down. Word so up. Mm-hmm. I thought that was um, that was one of those things where, OK, you know, uh, realism and culturally accurate. So uh, now let's move on to what age the best for you in this. Abusing undocumented workers. Um, it, there's a scene with Cuddy where 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 Cuddy is uh he's out there he's working with the lawnmower man the lady comes out there she's trying her best to speak some cockamamie Spanish but you <laughs> yeah, see that's the part I appreciated I was like eh, right. she sounds not good <laughs> right uh you you see her you know talking and you know the plight of those men it was an issue in 2004. It was an issue in 1994. It was an issue in 1984. It was an issue in 1974. And the issue is not the guys that are that are working. The issue is how the country treats them. And you could see sort of in her relationship, the way she kind of positions herself with them, the way she kind of views them. And then very really, the guy says, you know, the lawnmower guy says, oh, they all on paper, too. So there's an exploitation happening and a conversation that was going on then that we're still having now, figuring out how we protect and respect uh, people that want better out of their lives and have come to America to do it. Well, what was interesting to me when I watched that scene is that I assumed she, Cuddy was in her line of vision. Yeah. And I'm like, did she not know that he wasn't? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Maybe <laughs> she thought he, he was a, a Latino. I was maybe like, she thought he was a Sammy Sosa. 
You but never maybe know. She did. Maybe she well, thought it was a Sammy. I mean, he, well, now, also, well, yeah, Sammy now looks oh, more old like school her. Sammy Sosa. Right, right, not right, like, right, right, right. Not like current Sammy Sosa. Right, right. exactly. <laughs> so I was just like, eh, I think mm-hmm. one of these things don't belong with the other. So right. you might be all right in terms of English. Um, yeah, definitely something good to point out about uh, what age the best. Um, and also, I probably say. The, the pointlessness of the war on drugs, if we're going big picture. Sure, like that, yeah, that of course. That totally aged really well. But a smaller thing that has aged exceptionally well, it actually, it, it feels weird to even say that it aged well because it's honestly timeless because I don't ever see this in any, um, in any capacity ever running its course. Do-rags. Yeah. Have you noticed the number of do-rags in season three, particularly one by Preston Bodie, right? Yeah. Yeah. In this episode alone, he has three, or no, he has two different duty rags. And by my count, I think we see either three or four. Because he had like a camouflage one on, mm-hmm. he had a white one on, and a black one on. And this yeah. one. Can I be real his with do-rag, you? His do rag collection is, 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 you know, it's legit. Number one, I got pushed back on you a little bit about this. Really? Okay, so do rags have aged exceptionally well. Right. Do you think that do rags as outerwear have aged Ooh. exceptionally well that's okay. what the, the okay. reason why he had that's a bunch fair. of the reason why that's he fair. had a bunch of different do-rags is because jamel i had a red one i had a blue one i had a camo one i had one that was kind of black and silver so when i i like that was an era shout out to nelly shout out to luda that was an era so i'm just asking because the do-rag will never that's it's, a fair it's, point the do-rag will never go away you know what I mean? I thought about wearing a do-rag during this time to maybe try to get my waves back. But I'm like, no, your hair's thinning, so don't do it. Um, but but yeah, but you're 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 right. But it was different style of do-rag that he was wearing. You're correct. And, and I think I think you might be uh, I, I guess, you know, we we got uh, great viewers who uh, they can certainly tell us like, is is the public wearing of the do-rag still in? Mm. Is Good it question. still in? Yeah. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Well, I, I have to say, I mean, one of the places I often saw the do-rag and is the airport. <laughs> I've seen many a brother get on a flight. Right. Do-rag and slides. Do-rag and slides. And, and I'm very appreciative of every time I see such a cultural moment happening. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's true. So, but yes, you're, you're, you are absolutely correct. It's like, eh. I don't know if wearing them out, not like it was in not the early like 2000s. Was. Not like yeah, it was. Yeah, you're right. To that point, I have two things that age the worst. Okay. One is so obvious. Mm. Going to movie theaters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That ooh, ooh that didn't that didn't hold up. But you know, I you could make a case that even pre-pandemic, shaky. 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 You could you go you could argue that. I go a lot, but I don't see a lot of people there. Like, there's not a lot of people like me. I used to go all the time, but right. people were going less and less, it seemed like. And you could um, also argue that the movies as a date hasn't aged the best. They they Pandemic all they not. all Twitter does is shit on that. <laughs> all Twitter does is say that's a terrible first date. It I can't even talk to day. you. Come on, man. It's terrible. You know why? Because you don't talk for two hours. That's why it's bad. That's why it's good. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if, a, if a dude takes you to the movies or the club, he ain't trying to talk to your ass at right. all. That's why it's good. And something else that aged the worst, I just saw something on, uh, 
I think NBA Central's Twitter about this, headbands. This was at the height of the headbands era. There are players in the NBA that we forgot tried the headband. Kobe had the headband on for a while. Obviously, LeBron had the headband on. You don't remember Kobe? I forgot about that. Kobe wore the headband for a while, too. Everybody, man, because they had a picture of him. I forgot. Rest in peace. I forget. I forgot that Kobe tried the headband for a while. So everybody was in the headband. When you watch this, yo, Jamel, Bodie put a headband over oh, the, the durag. Oh, durag. I know. He, he went extra level. <laughs> I ain't going to lie. That's, that's, that's next level. That's over the Durac. <laughs> Bodie put a headband over the Durac. And they used to do it. Shout out to Nelly again. They used to do it. But think about it. Crazy. That did Crazy. not age good. You're did so Did not right. age well. Right. Oh, man. that That's a hell of an observation. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what? It's funny. When I'm watching the scene when he has on, because he had on the, that's when he had on the black Durac and he had mm-hmm. the blue headband. Mm-hmm. And I, at first I thought it was, it was part of the do-rag design. I thought it was like <laughs> a stripe. I thought it was like, oh, does he have like a blue stripe? Like over his, uh, that's part of the black do-rag? Like what's that? I was like, oh shit, it's a headband. Like, okay, he needed extra, he needed to make sure it was down, down, right? Right, like, yeah. <laughs> the waves is locked in tight, you know? Mm-hmm. Had to make sure. And the thing about Bodie, the way he wears his is like, he don't even tie that shit. Not really. He was like, it just, just flaps. flowing. Just it's flowing. all for fashion, for zero function. That's right. Yeah. That's just cape it. Uh, for me, what aged the worst, and I say this so that the the people who are animal lovers, I, I want y'all to to, to stand down because I'm not saying it ever should have been in, mm, ooh, but dog fighting because realize, yeah, dog, you know, this is when you think about the most attention, obviously, that dog fighting has ever gotten. That was when what happened with Michael Vick when he was mm-hmm. uh, sent to prison. Uh, for dog fighting. And so it became an entirely different kind of conversation. And I don't know if the people who watched The Wire knew that something existed like this existed uh, before they saw it on screen. But, you know, that was something at least I can just, you know, speak from my uh, childhood and growing up. And I'm sure you have a particular experience because you lived in Louisiana where Mm -hmm. these things are known to happen as well. All the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a habit all the time. Um, it was, you know, Detroit was definitely known once because I, I remember there were stories done. They, they looked at the cities and areas where dogfighting, unfortunately, still existed. And Detroit was one where there was a lot of it going on. You definitely knew on my grandmother's block in particular, you knew the dudes that fought dogs. You could go see them at a certain time when they did it. Everybody knew where it was and nobody thought twice about it. That's not to say it made it right, but it was just that's what I, it was. I'm going to be completely honest with you one of the most befuddled moments I've ever had in my adult life was when all that happened with Michael Vick because um, my first inclination was to be like, wait a minute, this is that big a deal? Because, not because of any, by the way, I learned more about dogfighting through that than I ever knew. I learned, I didn't, first, that, that was a part of me that didn't even know that the dogs were fighting to the death. Like it, 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 and so I had never been to a dog fight before, but I knew people that do it all the time, and I would see their dogs and see them raising dogs and do the and have the whole deal and stuff like that. And so it was the first time I really got, I guess, intellectually acquainted with what it is to run a dog fighting ring 
and all of that stuff. But even still, when they were saying like, yo, he might go to jail for a couple, I was like, for real? Yeah. And, I, and, I, and my initial reaction was to be pissed off because I, I didn't see it as anything so abhorrent that like you would put, take that man and put him in jail for it. But boy, did I learn different. And boy, did he learn different. You know what I mean? So uh, terrible, terrible thing. And I'm glad that it, it got its, its cultural execution as it did during that time. Yeah, because, I mean, when this happened to Vic, this is around 2007. So this mm-hmm. is 2007. And so in many ways, by bringing, by putting this on screen, The Wire was ahead of its time, if yeah, you will. Sure. I mean, again, people knew it happened, but, you know, to be on screen and to be kind of a part of a storyline was was certainly very, you know, unique. And so yeah. um, it's it's whatever presence that it had clearly did not bode well, because I agree with you is that in, in this you know, this is not to disrespect the, the the lives of the dogs that were lost, but without Michael Vick, I don't know if this issue is ever in the public consciousness the way that it was. No, I don't think and, so either. Yeah. Yeah. Not not at all. And there's a lot of people who, like yourself, got an education on it. Um, So from that, we move on to always my favorite part. Let's just talk about Stringer. That's what hearts it. Let's talk about Russell Stringer Bill. Mm-hmm. Oh, so... He has come up with this plan that, you know, he's not going to muscle other dealers off the corners. He's just mm-hmm. going to present them with a, a opportunity mm-hmm. to join in, to join along, to form an organization, to be a part of some prosperity. And he really thought, in his mind, he saw this working, right? And generally, he had some success with it, I'll be fair. Mm-hmm. But I don't know why he actually thought that, this was a flawless plan that would have worked. Didn't he expect there would be some pushback or did he think given all the problems that the Barksdale organization has had problems, by the way, that have been in full view from the lack of supply to the lack of muscle to all that. He didn't realize, you know, there might be some people who may not be down with this particular plan. And if you Russell Stringer Bell, right. And, you know, you consider yourself to be a businessman. And uh, part of being a businessman is that you're supposed to scout. You're supposed to have intel. Mm-hmm. Had you never heard of Marlo? Like, that didn't just, no, that one slipped by you? Didn't, didn't know that he had been able to amass his own empire? Like, was that, yeah? I see you raising a Baptist finger. Go ahead. Well, a couple of things here. Uh-huh. Let's look at what was actually happening. Stringer was giving them better dope for cheaper prices. He was, so yes. he was thinking that not only giving them better dope for cheaper prices, but giving them dope to take a step on a couple of times mm-hmm. for a cheaper price, and they were going to make way more money. So he was thinking, and by the way, this also came from, and this is why perspective is so important. Stringer's goal in the drug game is to make enough money. That's all he cares about. It's just business with him. Marlo fundamentally cares about winning and being number one. Fundamentally. Avon fundamentally cares about winning and number one. Marlo chasing the crown. And the crown comes with the money, but the crown is first. Stringer's not chasing the crown. So what he under... He was wrong, but but he was wrong just because when he, when he educated everybody, he said, listen, we had less territory, but we made more. He's thinking, damn, I didn't even know you could do that. And when everybody else hears that you could do that, Everyone's going to lay their glocks down and we're going to be in a heroin 
like heaven where everybody's getting all the greatest, but he underestimated. So I like he's it's one of those weird things where he's not wrong. He's just off. And he once again uh, just doesn't understand why people are doing the things that they're doing. But it's it's amazing that he doesn't understand that because that's how he got where he was. So he very much understands because understands it because he's been working with it for years. That no, was but, him and Avon. No, but he got business. He got where he was handling business for a gangster, not yes, being I, I that gangster. That. Right. But he saw that as he literally just experienced Avon. That is more of the prototype of what you're dealing with on the street. He has worked alongside this guy long enough to understand that mentality, that thirst for territory. Territory means something. The idea of, of making a lot of money but having no territory does not appeal to somebody like Avon. He or to needs, somebody like Marlo, right. Or to somebody white, which is like he understands. He should have the insight. He should have the insight because he's been with this mentality forever and he knows it's not easy to evolve and most people have it. You right. know thy enemy because you work with him. <laughs> right. He, like, the, is, the, the issue with it is that most guys took his package, right? But it only takes one Marlo not to. Exactly. And, and one Avon not to. And you should be, you should be out there considering that there's probably going to be one guy that's going to be like, yo, I lay bodies down for these corners. I'm not going to give them up. But at the same time, at the base of it, Stringer is right. At the base, see, that's what I don't like when you do your Stringer thing and you don't want to give this man credit for eating vegetables and shit. Like, like farmer's market. (laughs) But at the base, like, like Stringer's right. It could have all been avoided and everybody could have all made more money. But you can be right and wrong in the sense of, you, can. you know, that's why sometimes it's not good to be the first. This is right. why. Because right. it, it can be more of a challenge if you don't have the type of audience that is ready to receive this. Mm-hmm. He was too far ahead of his time for where he was. That's the most credit I will give him. Oh, there so you go. Be- and so because of that, I needed him to adapt or at least understand that, like, yo, after you... After you try this, you know, the the Microsoft way, you might need to try this shit the Corleone way. A ah, <laughs> little bit. A little bit. Just, just might need to. He needed more balance, which is why this is one of those situations. Like when this situation with Marlo, as it's bubbling right now, this is when he needs Avon the most mm-hmm. to, to handle and and really kind of talk some sense to into him to say, now we got to handle this a different way because... This dude ain't interested in board meetings and ain't interested in rich dad, poor dad. He don't give a fuck. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, that ain't his whole thing. But even beyond his, once again, another failed mastermind plan by him, is when he checked Bodie about not looking for Melo, or Martin Melo, for not looking for Marlo hard enough. Don't you hate that kind of boss? Like, that's just some, I was like, boy, if that ain't some old middle management ass shit. Marlo, Marlo not out there right now. He's like, yo, you yeah. caught this meeting. You show up for the meeting. And he's like, why the fuck you ain't working harder? Well, motherfucker, yeah. stop calling meetings. Stop How about that? And I'll tell me not to come to the meeting. That, 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 that did kind of annoy me. Yeah. That was just kind of like some, oh, my God, that's some corporate America type of shit if I ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, now let's get into some trivia. We will do File This Away for later. But 
you know, as I think we said in the last episode, just trying to put it toward the end of the episodes in case some of you guys have not seen The Wire or watching for the first time, then you won't be inundated with spoilers earlier in this particular podcast. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned up top to you, Van, you have, uh, you know, you've gone on record. You said the season three is the best season of The Wire. Mm -hmm. So um, much to, I'm sure, everybody's scorn or derision, I revealed in season uh, two when we did that, that season two was actually the highest rated season of The Wire. Sure. Which was crazy. Um, But, you know, after successful season one, maybe it's not so crazy. But you would think, you know, season three, people get a little more warmed up to The Wire. You know, maybe it might do a little better. Boy, was I surprised to find that The Wire barely averaged 1.9 million viewers in season three. Mm. And I'm like, that's it? You know, and and I know on a lot of other networks, I'd be like, oh, shit, 1.9 million viewers. That's literally nothing for premium cable television. Then I did some little deeper digging to figure out why so, I mean, why so few viewers where it barely was able to even get to the heights of season one. Mm Mm-hmm. And it turns out there was two particular juggernauts that were killing the wire. And I wondered, like, would they have been better moving into a different night? Desperate Housewives and Sunday Night Football. Just Uh, killing the wire. Killing the wire. And I was like, oh, that's what happened. Mm. And even though the Sopranos, now keep in mind, this is why that number 1.9 looks particularly bad. Because the Sopranos, which was the lead in, I believe, for The Wire. It was. It was averaging like 15, 16 million viewers. At that point, The Sopranos was, not till Game of Thrones came around, The Sopranos was as popping on, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous the level that The Sopranos had reached at that point. Only Game of Thrones could be compared on HBO to what The Sopranos was doing at that moment. It was the biggest show ever. So the thinking is, you will be able to draft off these numbers. Right. And to be left with 1.9, mm-hmm. honestly, it's it's shocking based off that that The Wire actually made it five seasons. All right. That yeah. makes it more shocking. So sure. unfortunate viewership trivia for uh, people there. Also, Gus Triandos, Herc's mm. favorite, <laughs> Herc's man crush, right. is a real person. I looked him up. Yeah. Okay. Played 13 years in the majors. He's passed away now. Yes, he has passed away. 244 hitter. Went to four all-star games or made okay. four all-star appearances. So he wasn't bad. Oh, yeah, four looked, all-star games. That's a good career. Yeah. yeah, he wasn't bad at all. I looked at him and I was like, ah, I don't know if I agree with Herc's this description of him as somebody who was that just kind of... Sad looking? Yeah. I don't know if he was sad looking. Oh, you think he kind of popping? No, I didn't say that. But I don't, know if, <laughs> I don't know if sad looking is the way that I would describe him. But right. your, your man crush for Herc, Gus Triandos... Who, by the way, one of his nicknames uh, was the Golden Greek. Really puts that crush in perspective, huh? Right, exactly. <laughs> Interesting. A uh, few filed this away for later moments. Um, I think one of the biggest ones for me was McNulty planting the seed to Donette that D'Angelo may not have committed suicide. Huge. That's, that's, that's a, a huge one. Yeah, huge. Yeah. yeah. Any others that you noticed? Yeah. So one actually that we might have missed earlier when we were talking about new characters. So when Tree uh, offs the guy that cheated Cheese, one of the kids standing in the trio is going to be responsible. His name is Sherrod. He's going to be responsible 
in a very roundabout way for something monumental that happens to Bubbles. Uh, um, and we're literally... Uh, you know what? I didn't even notice that. You're right. Yep. And we're very going, good catch. We, we very are, good catch. We are going to watch that kid basically grow up on this show. Um, and he is, besides Johnny, maybe almost even more than Johnny, but definitely besides Johnny, probably the most important person to the development of the character of Bubbles in The Wire. Uh, I would definitely agree with that. And, you know, I put it in the category of one of those characters because of how his story is completed. Um, it stays with you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it definitely stays with you, one of those. Yeah. All right. Finally, we get to the moment of true Van who won the episode. Marlo. <laughs> that, it, that is... Kind of hard to debate. Marlo, Marlo, Marlo definitely won. Mar like Marlo is like, yo, Avon can handle up. I know. Like what you go like just just the way Marlo played it. Every time Marlo came on screen, he was in total control. Everybody else's worlds are fracturing, and they frantic about it. Every like it, there's one person in this episode that is not frantic, that is sure of himself, that is cool, that is calm, that is collected that is ready for the approaching storm. Marlo Stansfield. Yeah, uh, and and it's amazing because at this point, like, we're just getting to know him. Mm -hmm. And one thing I didn't notice until uh, we started this we rewatch is how many, is that he steals basically every scene he's in. All Everyone. of them. Yeah. Like, all of them. And mm -hmm. as you said, he always leaves you with a quotable, which, right. is, which is crazy. But even when he isn't saying much the amount of presence that he has i mean you have somebody when bodie walked up on him who is swinging a golf club in the middle of inner city baltimore right and you would have thought based off his demeanor based off how cool and calm he was that he was you know at pine hills like right <laughs> like you really would have thought because he he ain't stressed he ain't worried and you know, he is, that's what makes him, I think, much more frightening than some of the other quote-unquote villains. I put that in, in, in quotes just because nobody's really um, a villain on the wire, even people who do really heinous things. Um, but, uh, and that's just because of, of the, the excellent writing. But, you know, he is, he's, he's definitely the most diabolical um, and one of the most frightening figures on this in this series because sure. of his ability to have so much presence, even in silence. Of course, and, of course, and that's yeah. kind of crazy. Yep. Um, that's a great choice for me. Who in the episode was Bunny Colvin? Bunny Colvin, my man. Mm -hmm. Um, because Bunny arrived at a and granted, look, based off what we know of his story arc right now, he's a few months from retiring. He is out of fucks. He like you know he's reevaluating everything. Mm -hmm. And even though he's at the end of his career, he's on the back nine, it says something that he is in this moment deciding to disrupt this whole system that he's only known to be this way. Right. Because a lot of people wouldn't want this headache on the way out. They just like, you sure. know, what? I'm going to just collect this check, get these benefits, wait on this type, wait on this pension and just leave it at that. Y'all go ahead. Do as many hand to hands as you want. Keep doing the same dumb shit. Keep bringing motherfuckers in here for loitering and silly shit and filling the jails up for no reason so you can be on a power trip. Like, mm -hmm. keep doing it. 
right? He could easily have taken that course of action, but he goes the harder way towards self-awareness and introspection, which will ultimately lead to change, which will, as we know, give us one of the most um, dynamic, <laughs> compelling storylines of the Wire period because he right. is he is setting the, the the stage for something truly huge and revolutionary that incites a different types of conver- different type of conversation around how we handle drug enforcement in this country. Of course, yeah, absolutely. So, so to me, he is the winner of all due respect. Um, well, I think that about does it for us. We have torn through this episode and dug into all the nooks and crannies. We thank you again for your continued support. Mm. Um, and yeah, remember what was the, the question of this episode? Do rags in public. Is it out? Is Still it gone? A thing? Still, Still a thing, thing or, or not no? a thing? Yes, all right. we, need, we need to hear from y'all. So uh, we appreciate y'all. As always, keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire. We'll see y'all next time. Peace.